This is Sphere, a podcast on the history and evolution of global environmental governance. Hi, my name is Eric Paglia, and I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of Sphere, a podcast that explores the extraordinary 70-year history of the rise of the environment as a major international issue. Over the course of this podcast series, we'll be speaking with a wide range of historians, scientists, and experts, as well as government officials and other active participants in the evolution of global environmental governance. They'll share their experiences, insights, and oral histories that encompass the politics, the science, and the activism that helped put the environment on the social and political agenda of countries around the world and in the context of international affairs. This podcast is part of the research project Sphere which stands for the Study of the Planetary-Human Environment Relationship, funded by the European Research Council, and based at the Division of History of Science, Technology, and Environment at KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Sweden. You can find out more about the project and our research at kth.se slash sphere. Here on this inaugural episode of the Sphere podcast, I'll be speaking with the project's principal investigator, Professor Sverker Sorlin, about a recent book called The Environment, a History of the Idea, which he co-authored together with professors Libby Robin and Paul Ward, who's also a member of the Sphere team. I start by asking Sverker about the significance of the year 1948, which he and Paul and Libby identify as a starting point in the rise of the environment as a major political, economic, and scientific idea in the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, well, it's slightly symbolic, of course. It is a gradual development, but it's pretty much happening at that time. And uh, during 1948, several things happened that makes it possible for us to suggest that year. First of all, a couple of very uh, groundbreaking books, actually, I should say. William Fox, The Road to Survival, which was published in the U.S. in 1948. And then the other one was Fairfield Osborne's Our Plunder Planet. Both of them were about the what they perceived as a major changes, rapid changes going on in, in nature to the worst, to detrimental change. The word environment is also engaged, in particular by uh, William Fogg, who uses it to denote this kind of combination of ailments that were happening at the same time, like overfishing, overgrazing, industrial pollution, pollution in oceans uh, and erosion. Maybe the top thing for Fogg was was overpopulation, as he called it, basically population growth. The All these phenomena that he basically he covered for each chapter, he had a, a bad story to offer about problems occurring in nature or what was then after this increasingly being called the environment. He was also writing in a very sort of powerful, forceful, captivating style. Osborne's book is less it's a bit more timid in in the style and tone but as concerned and he even uses the language what we hear today about the he doesn't use the concept anthropocene but he talks about humanity as a geological force in this book in 1948 and around these seminal two books we found also a number of articles uh, being published on similar ideas uh, at about the same time <clears throat> and uh, also in the same moment there were several uh, commissions after the war to discuss uh, critical natural resources and energy resources. And in that discussion, the idea that peak there was a peak oil moment also happening. So that was coined in 1947, but published in 1948. Uh, and, and so we find basically um, evidence to suggest that around that time, there was a, a kind of a leap of mind, in a sense, that the concept of environment 
to be used as as about the the outside world that humans somehow affected negatively. And that idea is now, 50, 60, 70 years later, became so extremely dominant or commonplace that it may even seem hard to think about it in any other way. But environment as a word is, of course, much older, but was used for a different purpose. The, the, the environment was the surrounding of people that affected people. So human minds, human societies, authors, um, artists were affected by environment and landscape, and that sort of shaped their minds. Climate is a very closely related word in the sense that climate also affected people in old beliefs. And some would even explain entire civilizations, the level of civilization, the particular properties of a certain culture, if people were industrious or lazy, for example, if they were slow and dull, or if they were quick in their mind and thinking things so we call these prejudices now of course but that was like science <laughs> in the 19th century and well into the 20th but the decades preceding decades particularly the second world war made these kinds of biological and environmental deterministic ideas very very unpleasant to uh, continue and it was in a sense replaced by this uh, idea that humans had an enormous power to change the world around them but also it was done mostly negatively. So the, the, the big political issue that then sort of grew from this insight was that we must do something <laughs> about this destructive nature, destructive behavior of human societies. So that's, the, in a sense, a moment of birth in the late 1940s, 1948. So that's why we sort of focus very much on that. Also, there were big conferences by the International Union of Conservation, uh, the IUCN, had meet, big meetings in in precisely those years, 47, 48. Also, there was the United Nations big congresses in Lake Success near New York, uh, where they also discussed resource issues and what we would today call environmental issues. And another very particular feature with the concept of environment was that it was this broad range of activities. It was just one single thing. It was a, a kind of a, an integrative concept. It made it possible to consider many effects that that people caused on the planet and in, in nature, and also, of course, in local circumstances. So 1948 being the formative moment in your, in your um, research, but it took some 15 or more years until there was real activism. This, this, this initial 1948 moment, it took some time before people actually started doing something with this knowledge, this new perception of the environment is something that is both being threatened, but also through human... Uh, degradation also threatening humans. It took some time before that really caught on as a political issue. Yeah, that's probably true to say that. But uh, I think it's uh, more. There's much more work to be done actually on what happened in the fifties. I think it's sort of creeping out there. It's it's spreading. The word is spreading. There were conferences, uh, mostly of course by scientists and experts, and but also some professionals starting thinking about environment as being somehow of some significance traffic planning, urban environments that maybe we couldn't just continue. But it was scattered and um, and it was a little bit unarticulated and the political tools to deal with it were not very well developed. Certainly there were national parks, regional parks, these kind of uh, reserve idea that had even been before, but that could now be more applied when you're talking about environment. But it wasn't not really fully until the 60s that this broke out. And I think that was partly explained by another factor, namely 
the general political change in the 1960s, that there was a new wave of popular movements were started in many areas. And in the United States, there was the civic movement as well. A quest for justice, it became popular again to walk into the streets to, to really demonstrate for your and protest. The, when the environmental issues were spreading in the 60s, they also captured the minds of youth. So they became engaged as well. And, and in the 60s, the range of environmentally engaged literature and opinion grew also tremendously with famous books like Silent Spring, for example. But it's important to note that Silent Spring certainly did not start the whole thing, but it catalyzed it in a critical moment. And it did so along with a large number of books and pamphlets written in many languages around the world. In, in this country, in Sweden, we had several uh, written by scientists, but also by journalists, and also some were on the political side. Some were even novels or, or essays, even poetry started appearing. So it became, uh, I think there were some national flavors to this. If you, it was not the same in different countries, they could also connect to older passions and engagement with nature. But they, they started hovering around this new concept. So environment was always there and grew and grew and grew. And it started also putting out subcategories of environmental became a prefix word. So environmental justice, environmental uh, destruction, environmental this or that. Uh, and also environments. Uh, you could call, talk about indoor environments or outdoor environments. And uh, any, anything could be an environment all of a sudden. And that speaks to the enormous success. And then the next step was that you started creating institutions like environmental protection agencies, environmental ministries, happened more, more in the 70s than in the 60s, but it started in the 60s in a few countries. After that, it's been just exploding. In the book, you also um, discuss it, uh, it's unlike the uh, key role played by experts, by scientists and other experts on making this a, a political issue and also sort of, a, in sort of solidifying the environment as a concept. Yeah, I think from very early on, uh, the concept of environment in order to not just stay a word, but have some clout and political weight, uh, and also scientific weight, because also scientific departments started being formed around this concept. Environment, schools of environment, for example, that often replaced forestry schools and things like that, renamed them. So what, what you can see there is that um, to, to be able to make a claim about change going on in the environment you needed to say that, well, before it was like this, now it's like that. What's happened? Well, it's pollution. <laughs> or uh, now uh, there's a certain number of PPM, CO2 particles in the, in, in, in the atmosphere. How many were there before? Because otherwise you don't know if it's grown or shrunk. So accompanying figure of thought, in a, in a sense, was this idea of rates of change. What was the direction of change in nature or in the environment, and what was the rate of it? And that somehow, the rate of change signaled the level of danger, the level of threat that could come from this change. So lots of work was put into that. And in order to do that, you needed, or those who engaged in that were hydrologists, ecologists, biologists, chemists, uh, people who could measure uh, various properties of, of the environment and come up with some kind of idea of what was actually the change. So it, in a sense, it was almost necessary to have expertise, scientific expertise on board to be able to make the claim. And uh, 
Fairfield Osborne and William Fox were both uh, ecologists. They came from the biological side. And Fox had himself uh, been in the jungles, basically, of Latin America, uh, working for many governments in the war years, and had been writing reports about state of the art of nature. And he was also an ornithologist. So he was an expert in looking at bird populations. And he found worrying signs in the forests of, of Latin America that actually the numbers of birds were going down. And there were negative shifts happening. Kind of the same, same motif in some ways as Silent Spring. A little bit, but that was, uh, he, she knew the, the reasons. <laughs> it was DDT, PCB, those uh, toxic uh, things. To, to, I think for fact, it was a little bit more like a, something enigmatic about it. But it clearly, it was to do with what humans did. For example, deforestation was a, was a bad thing. And so, but there was this causal relations, but you also wanted to know the rates of change. You couldn't allow that to, to, I mean, lay people couldn't establish these connections. You needed science to establish or claim. So it became defined as a very much an expert thing, which also, I think, partly explains the lack of political engagement. This was not what political parties had thought about. They had no policy for this. It was, well, it was sad thing happens here with so what is this a liberal issue is it an issue for the conservatives is it a radical thing what should who should engage in this so uh, it took a while until this sort of a new more complete understanding had had appeared and it became somehow also you could clearly blame someone for it and you could blame the chemical industry, for example, like in Silent Spring. And you can maybe big agricultural business also did bad things. And, and then growing cities was a problem. Then you can identify the problems and then you can build movements around. Also, people were actually, certain groups were particularly threatened. And then they could rally and build alliances with others. So it is an evolution of this whole uh, sort of uh, an environmental policy complex over a couple of decades after the war. And certain scientists took on a certain, uh, let's say, connect the dots role as well, kind of making these these sort of chains of, of, of causality. Exactly. To made it easier for politicians to, to grapple with it. Uh, yeah. A term you call meta-specialists. Yeah, actually, these were often trained specialists in some discipline, uh, but the, the most powerful voices in, in, in the discussion, the emerging debates or discussion uh, and conceptualization of the environment were people who, who ventured far outside of their own home fields. They, they really connected the dots. They, they, they started thinking about environment as the prime interest of their expertise engagement. And then they couldn't stay with their little molecule or their particular issue. They wanted to extend this to a broader understanding and uh, looked at consequences for society. They counted on costs. They started discussing maybe population growth should be it shouldn't grow so quickly. So they started to conceive of these as, br- as a broad issue, but it was still somehow resting on this. Uh, the primary understanding was somehow scientific. So it is an issue that somehow starts in, in, in a scientific understanding and, and then sort of translates and broadens into a more popular engagement. But it took, as I said, a couple of decades or several decades for that to happen. And then it becomes more institutionalized. So in the book, we also try to look at certain phases here. First 20-year phase, maybe up running up to the Stockholm Conference in 1972 for the environment. Then it's sort of globally established, the Conference on the Human Environment. And everybody would then know what it was, basically. And then you have a period of increasing institutionalization over the basically the rest of the 20th century, 
where ministries are built, departments of environmental concern or environment are being formed in in governments in many countries. You find also special public agencies dealing with it. You find a whole lot of um, institutes being formed, reshaping of university faculties, these kinds of things. It's a, a broad, sweeping change. And then in the last couple of decades, say from around 2020 as a sort of symbolic year, you, you see more uh, a broadening of, of sort of diversification so that environment isn't is, is supplemented by concepts like sustainability, resilience, uh, earth system science, Anthropocene, you find sort of a diversification of discourses under certain aspects of this. But still, I would say that the overarching umbrella concept for all this is is environment. I mean, one one term that uh, seems like it's become sort of the uh, the preferred uh, frame for looking at environmental issues is climate. And it took some time. You mentioned these experts and these scientists that they had a voice in the early days of articulating the environment as, as a political issue. But it took some time, not until quite recently, that the climate scientists became the leading voices for environment. Yes, and that's very interesting indeed. And I think there are several explanations to this. Maybe the chief one is that they operate in very different spheres. Of course, climate scientists were also experts. And they were also an agglomeration of different kinds of experts. Meteorologists were there. Other kinds of geophysical experts were also involved. And there were, there were also the old sort of climatologists. You would find glaciologists, geographers. You had a range of people who had ga- engaged in climate-related issues and geologists also. And, and for a long time, uh, of course, the current understanding of the anthropogenic roots of rapid climate change as we experience it now, were either not known or um, controversial or even denounced as impossible. That was the common understanding well into the 1950s, that it was not an hypothesis that should be considered seriously. But in the middle of the 50s, that started to change. And that changed within the community of pretty physics theoretically oriented meteorologists and and, uh, other physicists engaged in climate research. So, and that community had by tradition been working very closely with another strand of institutions linked to the military and the defense sector and air flight. High tech, and pretty, as I said, theoretical, and with little or no interest in, in biology or things happening on the ground. They worked also on totally different scales. These were atmospheric phenomena, not lakes or ponds, things like that. So, and uh, not even PCBs and DDTs very much. So what, you, what was then needed was people who could translate between these fields. And certain people did, like Paul Krutzer, for example, who worked, started as an engineer, were, moved into, into chemistry, but then also started engaging in earth system science and had a lot of things to deal with people working in, on environmental issues. And he was certainly not alone. Many people crisscrossed uh, boundaries here and built this more comprehensive understanding. So climate came slowly and gradually into uh, into touch with the environment. Another key figure here was, of course, Bert Boleyn, who was the first president of IPCC. They were actually both working together in Stockholm. Crutzen was Boleyn's student, actually. <laughs> so the, these names are not mentioned sort of by coincidence. They, they, uh, and they also ran big research programs. So it's, it's only when they somehow managed to find a way of communicating with those engaged in the environment who institutionally were very different kinds of people uh, in, in, in different scientific fields. Then, then gradually, when the anthropogenic source of climate change was 
clearly uh, understood and established, it could be, it was pretty obvious that, yeah, well, actually, climate is also part of the environment. Atmosphere is also part of the environment. It's the same kind of thing. People do harm to nature. It's just the atmosphere. And then you have more, perhaps, stronger feedback mechanisms. And I think the strength of the feedback mechanisms from climate change has made, I think, uh, at least part of the reason that <laughs> climate has really climbed on the agenda and become the almost superior part of the environmental discourse because it's so forcefully affecting all the others. But then again, of course, there's interaction on all levels here. So the, the, I think the seriousness of the environmental issue is, of course, much, much bigger now than it was in 1948, than when it's just discovered, because we have also discovered several of the problems have been dealt with, I think, successfully, the easy ones, like end of pipe problems and some chemicals that we can stop and prohibit or something. But the, the combinatory, the com combinations, the re repercussions between different kinds of problems is just seem, seems to me growing. I mean, 2009, perhaps, could be said, was the one of the peaks for for climate change discourse and political interest with the Copenhagen uh, COP meeting, which was seen by many as a failure, but it, nonetheless, it was it was in some ways a, a peak moment for climate change. That same year, you were one of the, the co-authors of a, a very influential article uh, on the safe operating space for humanity, and the, the planetary boundaries concept, which perhaps uh, was in some ways a, a reaction to this sole focus on climate, saying, well, this climate is, of course, important. There's other big environmental issues also uh, at work that threaten humanity and create an unsafe uh, living space for humans if we don't address these. Um, and this was a result of, of work with, within Earth System Science, which you mentioned sometime, and also very much integral to this idea of the Anthropocene. Perhaps you could explain how these, these factors have come together to reshape environmental discourse in the past 10 years or so. Yeah, I think what the Planetary Boundaries paper in 2009, there have been sent then various new versions of it published after that, what it did was it continued this work, integrative work, that was started already with the, with the World Environment in 1948, and then has just continued, for example, with the absorption of the climate issue into environment, this sort of constant widening agenda. I should add here that social sciences and humanities also came on board. It started very much with a core set of sciences, natural sciences. But the uh, what I call the relevant expertise for environment is expanded and keeps expanding. It now covers any field of knowledge, actually. So, so that integrative work, I think, is neatly summarized in, in this uh, approach, uh, in this Planetary Boundaries paper. But it also introduces an idea that had been sort of cooking under the surface and coming up gradually uh, in the um, 90s and first decade of the 2000s, which was that the Earth could be considered as an entirety as a kind of manageable, governable object that could be some, that, it, that it that it contained systemic properties which were also environmental by nature. It was like a way of translating the idea that were there in 1948 that pollution destroyed a lake, for example. If you add up on the global scale these kinds of processes, you would find in certain dimensions of the Earth system that those dimensions are threatened also on the planetary level. So I think there is a sort of a, another leap, integrative leap, to move these processes into another scale. So scaling is also a very key feature here. And there were nine of those. For CO2 was in there and the atmosphere, but there was also um, ocean acidification, for example. Biodiversity, problematic dimension, though, it was also had some numbers for that. 
So, and we sort of walked through nine dimensions in that regard. And that's been much debated, first of all, because it, it is, of course, a construction. It's like a, a desktop idea that you, you can actually see these. But there is an empirical foundation for them. Uh, so the conversation is very much about to what extent uh, is it properly so? And also then, if it is properly so, what, what is the, can we be more exact about this boundary? What does it actually mean? What happens if it is being transgressed? Is, is that leading to disaster or is it, is it just some kind of changes that happen? That's a little bit unclear. But it was also, I think, a, a big, big metaphor for the kind of human-Earth relationship. The drivers of all these nine dimensions were, of course, the humans, largely. Certainly natural processes and natural variability is also involved here in all dimensions. But the, the, the massive uh, addition was human. And that's where the Anthropocene comes in, I think, which builds very much on the idea that hum humanity in recent periods, again discussed exactly for how long, <laughs> but particularly in, in the 20th century, particularly the second half, has been adding a lot to this mix and, and the sort of power of this human driver. And the thing there to keep in mind is that they um, also talked about a particular concept, which is the great acceleration. So from 1950s onwards, you have this enormous uh, addition of human impact, which gives off these pretty disturbing and massive consequences uh, that could be captured, that were captured in, in the planetary boundary. So in a certain sense, you, this integrative work is that you integrate certain big chunks of understanding that may have other roots and came up in other times and other contexts, but they somehow coalesce under certain new conceptualizations, like, for example, the planetary boundaries, which has been very much discussed and also influential in, in both in science and in more popular thinking, political thinking about this. Well, exactly. That's my, my next question. Is this idea, you mentioned the idea of the Earth as a governable object that the, the boundaries uh, framework uh, helps uh, articulate. How can that now be translated into something more in terms of the governance aspects, this governance trajectory that's also a, a part of the story, this you mentioned the Stockholm Conference in 1972 and this 50 years since then. How do these things come together in this moment now, where this, this governable object meets real efforts to govern the environment on a global scale? Yeah, I think we see this uh, more or less as we speak. Both people and or ordinary people, citizens, uh, politicians, companies, civic society movements, all over the place, people start realizing this, this, this enormous aggressive force of largely unintended by humanity by simply being so numerous and having so much economic activity and not being able to do this in a more in a more sustainable way we we create all these problems also for ourselves so how are you going to deal with this and if you go back to the early days of the environment uh, uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was very much uh, the toolbox to deal with this was not so well equipped. Mostly ideas were about containing things, stopping activities, prohibiting. Then we had a pretty long period of thinking more about the early days of governance and, and also you could say about new public management methods and models to create and build incentives for people to more deliberately change their behavior and open up new possibilities for both NGOs and companies to act rather than governments being perhaps too heavy-handed or reluctant to act. So other actors came into the picture. And I think now we're also seeing some 
well, some constraints in the possibilities of, of that particular toolbox. So now there is, a, I think, a new new wave of thinking about how to act together, another moment of integration between cities, for example, around the world, uh, unite, uh, also nations unite, the European Union, for example, taking a lead in combating climate. And I wanted to say as an historian, then you, you maybe take a longer view and say, well, actually, if you compare a century ago, before this acceleration had really started, <clears throat> you can see it, how it begins, how it just goes on grows, even the growth itself of this great acceleration is hailed as progress. We call it progress. But some doubt is coming in when people start saying, yeah, bad things happen when we do this. And now we're in a moment when we actually try to move ourselves out of this. But of course, we have soon 10 billion people on the planet. You cannot change that very quickly and easily. So we're not fighting with time. We have our coal budgets and CO2 budgets. And you could imagine that this is also something where where the Earth system governance or a global environmental governance is becoming normalized, in a sense. You could, you could see that this is actually a kind of regime that is emerging that will, one of those days, replace the industrial modernity capitalist-slash-socialist regime. And you could see an entirely new kind of regime appearing from the kinds of insights that started with books by an ornithologist <laughs> and, and a pamphlet by a, a writer and journalist like Rachel Carson. That was, it, it created immediate shockwaves, but it, over, over the longer period of multiple generations, you can see that this was the embryo of actually changing the world entirely. And then for the better, you never know. New disasters can happen. But I think this is something to, to think about global environmental governance, not just as a kind of identification of constantly new mechanisms or trade mechanisms. These are very, very useful, of course, and very necessary. The experts of this are very welcome to present their ideas. But it's also helpful to think about it as a more uh, broader cultural, political, civilizational, in a sense, change of societies. And, of course, geopolitics with that. And these can be presented as narratives and as movies, <laughs> as, as, as imaginaries of, of our development. So I think we need to think about global environmental change on multiple levels, not just the sort of toolbox level or the acidification rate level, but also at the grander level where it involves all of us, actually. Well, it's been quite a grand uh, explanation you've given us here, Serker. One final question um, relating to this this project, SPHERE, the Study for Planetary-Human-Environment uh, Relationship. How do these different strands that we've talked about come together in the research agenda for SPHERE and, and sort of the worldview that we're applying in this project? It's multiple activities, actually. We try to work regionally to begin with. We, so basically one core idea of this is to see when did environment become crucial in the workings of major international organizations like the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, big mineral companies working in Latin America, for example, energy companies and energy systems and regimes in Asia and in Europe, for example, wind power, or also the OECD, these kinds of organizations. When do they respond? When does it become the order of the day, the perfectly expected thing to do to weigh in environmental factors? So when does environmental governance enter into the practice of major agencies, uh, agencies then being all kinds of institutions. That is one, it's kind of a very solid empirical uh, issue to deal with, which hasn't been very much dealt with before. 
then we're also interested very much in the in the in the deeper drivers of this. Well, not the dri- not humanity as driver of the environmental change, but the other side of the coin is, of course, is how these changes are being discovered and elaborated, which happens very much in a scientific discourse. So very, we're very much interested in understanding the science behind this and to f- also critically examine the the foundations for, for all claims that are made too, and all the not the police the boundaries themselves. What, what do these numbers come from? To examine more carefully these processes, because not just because we want to be understand and be critical about them, but also because they will keep happening. How is it happening? What was important? What made certain numbers become successful and not others, for example? So that's one key interest as well, uh, the science side of this. And then we have also, in that regard, quite a lot of a look at the temporalities of these changes, studying the sciences of ice coring uh, and ocean sediments, the registers of the change, so to speak, the Earth archives, in a sense, how they emerged. After all, this is basically a historical project. We want to sort of get a clear understanding of what has happened over a century, particularly after the Second World War. But we're also very much interested in sort of using our findings to engage with the current debate. And we're also looking at the hotspots of this development, the places around the world where environment was becoming particularly articulated politically, scientifically or otherwise, some field sites, and also a city like Stockholm where many of the scientists were active and some institutions were built where the Human Environment Conference was organized in uh, 1972 to look at how it affected politics in a particular context and how also this became an internationally networked thing with lots of meetings the meeting places the the meetings themselves who were there is also something we look look carefully at we want to sort of uh, get a demography of who who were there were companies diplomats scientific experts uh, representatives of organizations who took interest who were getting the points first and wanted to sort of implement them in their work or who were scared by it and wanted to stop them or or sort of maneuver them out. Uh, So we work on different scales here and we but we sort of try to get a nuanced, richly textured image of of what pretty often so far has been described in pretty formulaic terms. Naming the organizations, naming the meetings, but not looking carefully at what actually happened in finer detail. Much. The Environment, the History of the Idea is published by Johns Hopkins University Press. The interview with Professor Sverker Sibin was conducted by Eric Paglia in Stockholm in October 2020. Music by Mark Vandenbosch, voiceover by Keith Foster. Sphere is supported by the European Research Council under the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme.